It's just that sense of bliss you get from eating pork when you get the crackling right. It's just one of the great meat dining experiences you can have in terms of base proteins. It's got to be one of the nicest things you could ever put into your mouth. Welcome to Next on the Menu, a podcast that's a curation of conversations on the future of the food. We're going to chat with some incredible people across the entire food industry and explore the perspectives of the innovations that will change the world of food as we know it. I'm Mitch Edwards, General Manager of Business and Innovation at Australian Pork, and joining me today as my co-host, Andrew Billy Baxter, our Chairman. G'day Mitch, good to be here. Fantastic buddy. Today we have a very dear old friend of mine on the show and someone who I and many others greatly respect as a chef and a restaurateur and an innovator within the foods of a space. In fact, Billy, you and I dined at his restaurant, Pendolino, over Christmas. We did. It was all around that greatest gift event we did, which um, was celebrating the best hams in Australia last year. I did remember Nino having a a few, he was a bit nervous on the day because I think he had six or seven other top master chefs in the room that he was cooking for. So um, yeah, it'd be good to hear his insight into that a bit later on. I think it always affects a bit when they're cooking for their peers, but right now, let's just kick it off. As a second-generation Italian, Nina Zaccali grew up in country Western Australia in a small town called Bunbury. His mother's family had been farming in the region for almost 100 years. At just 25, Nino opened his own restaurant in the Margaret River, and today, alongside his wife, Crisula, they own and operate two of Australia's most recognised fabulous Italian restaurants, the restaurant Pendolino and La Rosa, both in the Strand Arcade in Sydney CBD. Nino was also an author of uh, two cookbooks, the first one being Pasta Aritagiana, I'm sure I've got that wrong, but he'll correct it, and Venetian Republic, and regularly contributes to esteemed titles, including Delicious. Nino, welcome to Next on the Menu. It's always a great pleasure, Mitch, to talk to yourself, and uh, it's a great great pleasure to be part of the podcast. We're curious, as in, what's your relationship like to the land now? Well, I didn't grow up exactly on a farm. I was in Bunbury and it was a sort of like a town, it was a city, so it was a town of sort of 25,000 people. But Dad had always had a small farm and a vineyard that we were sort of at on a weekly basis. So we grew up with a connection with the, with the land. It was pretty intense. Dad was an Italian migrant, so like most Italian migrants, he grew just about everything that we had and we had livestock as well. And on Mum's side of the family, they're, they're an Anglo-Australian family, they They've been farming cattle in the southwest of Western Australia near Bunbury and Capel, and they're like serious farmers for like nearly 100 years. And we were pretty close to that as well. So the connection with the land and with agriculture was pretty strong. Uh, Bunbury sort of exists largely, it's a port town and there's mining, but there's a large-scale agricultural activity has been there for hundreds of years. And so we're pretty close. We sort of grew up with a strong sense of that around us. In terms of nowadays, yeah, for sure. You know, I live in a definitely in a you know sort of concrete jungle now. But I guess in terms of what I do and in terms of my daily sort of life as a you know as a chef, as a, and a restaurant owner, and dealing in you know, at, at a sort of probably you know the higher end of the, the restaurant scene, for us the relationship with produce is probably the most important thing that we do. So. To have relationships with farmers directly is really, really important because we really need to understand the relationship with the produce that we're that we're sort of transforming in the restaurants. And then the same goes for wine as well. Wine's a very big part of what we do. 
and we have a sort of bespoke program on procurement and wine, as we do with all our produce wine um, in Australia and in Italy. So those relationships with the agricultural producers, you know, they're really the more bespoke and more sort of more niche producers are really artisans in their own right, really. The, it sort of all starts with the farm. So that's really important for us to know the particular story that goes behind the producer and so that we can communicate that also to our clientele because people are really interested in it nowadays and they they want as much information as you can give them. I think that's a good point because, you know, I feel that, you know, four or five years ago, particularly the younger generation were almost taking a lot of that, you know, where food came from for granted. But I'm hoping now through a lot of what you're talking about that that's changing. The millennials and the Gen Zs coming through are starting to understand that connection and where food comes from. Is that, is that what you're seeing with some of the, you know, the, the people that come into the restaurant? I was at someone's house yesterday for lunch and and he's an Italian migrant, like I'm not an early generation. He was sort of direct. So he's Italian, grew up most of his life in Italy and he met a lovely Australian girl overseas and she dragged him over here to live in Manly. So they had me around for lunch yesterday and they've been living in a small apartment up until recently. And this lady would be, his partner would be in mid-50s and they've just sold their house on the harbour in Manly and they've moved to a bigger piece of land up in uh, near Narrabeen and and it's for the first time they've had a sort of a backyard and he's decided he's going to grow some vegetables like he grew up with himself in Liguria in Italy and she was so surprised at exactly how you actually grow vegetables and this is a woman in her 50s who's very sort of an accomplished lawyer and so it's not just the millennials and generation. I think there's a lot of people that are actually older, X generation, even the, the late, late boomers. If they've grown up in a city, they may not have had, depending on their family scenario and their background, they may not have been exposed to any kind of agricultural sort of reality at all. So it's, it's sort of, and, and she was so fascinated by the whole thing. She goes, I didn't realise that a celery grew the way like that. And I didn't realise that beetroots, beetroot actually came from the ground. She was being very frank with me. And I'm going, yeah, well, that's definitely how they grow, you know. But Nuno, but that was with her getting influenced by her husband and his roots. But, you know, in general, how do we get people to care more about, you know, where their food comes from? Not just those that have got a connection to an Italian migrant who has that history. How can we make our story more compelling to get people on board with this? Well, I think the process has kind of already been happening. So you're sort of like part of an evolution. The whole advent and the proliferation of farmers markets has been fantastic for that because that's what it's all about. And that's been a global phenomenon, really. So that's that's a really good thing. And I think it's really a process that's going to keep going forward. You know, there's a sort of a big interest in superfoods now and nutrition and, you know, or so-called superfoods, nutrition for sure. And I think that message is clear that if in terms of, you know, becoming more interested in the source of produce um, is, is something that's naturally happening anyway, I think... You know, people really, they like to know more about the stories. And I think really, I would suggest probably talking more about provenance and, you know, in terms of livestock sort of breed, the difference between breed. This stuff is really something that people are interested in. You know, it's interesting you mentioned about the farmers' markets and it's all contact and it's getting around beautiful produce and exploring produce. And to a certain extent, we even do that in the supermarkets or the fruit shop or the butcher shop. Yeah. But right now... Right now, at this very moment, we are all living history. You know, with this COVID, and I hate to keep going back to this horrible thing, but with COVID, it's changed everything. So it's 
cut out the connection of actually going exploring projects. There's so much more online or just ducking out and grabbing food. How are you finding things right now? And what are things like for you as a restaurant or a chef? Well, I mean, I think, you know, we can't really talk about much nowadays without talking about COVID because it's such a big thing right at this point in time in history. So, so I think you're right. I mean, the, the online economy, we've, I think the COVID's in Australia's probably kicked it along, you know, five years, maybe 10 years it's in, in one full swoop. So there's definitely going to be and has been, you know, that grocery boom. We've seen our online, we sort of pivoted to an online wine business, which we had already had set up. We'd never really fully explored because we were too busy running restaurants. But when we did, it was sort of went, you know, naught to sort of shoot the lights out in two weeks, which was really strange. And it sort of opened our eyes up to even an area of online economy that we hadn't fully probably contemplated. But yeah, I mean, that's a process that really takes you even out of the realm of looking at produce in a setting like a supermarket. And I think, you know, in Australia, Woolworths to a lesser degree, Coles have done it extremely well on a global scale, really. Um, we've always been exposed to pretty high quality fruit and vegetables. Obviously not the sort of, you know, heirloom varieties and, and very boutique and niche stuff that you you get in France and Italy and Spain and places like that and, and through Asia. But the quality of the produce in Australia, at least fruit and vegetables and, 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 and the meats, has been a, a pretty high level and has only gotten much better in recent years through the just the interest in, in food and, and quality products. But, I mean, yeah, when it all arrives in a box, you're definitely not sitting in front of, you know, any kind of proper demonstration of an assortment of fruit and vegetables or, a, you know, collection of fruit and vegetables and meat products and fish products. So the whole COVID thing's probably taken us away from that. Having said that, I think, you know, the whole thing about produce markets and their interest is that I think that in Australia, like like in Asia and Europe and other places like that, the actual act of going shopping is really an experiential thing that people do almost as a part of like an entertainment thing. It's like part of what they do. They're going to cook something. They won't cook less frequently but make it quite a sort of um, – make it a bit of a ritualistic thing to do and they'll go to the produce market and buy the beautiful produce and then go home and cook it and glass a couple of glasses of wine while you're doing that. Just a fantastic thing to do. COVID's obviously stopped that. I think that that will come back though when, when COVID's all over. And in a way, I think people, you know, our sense has been through closing the restaurants then reopening the restaurants is that experiential nature of food and wine, whether it's in your home or whether it's actually in a restaurant, has become almost more revered, more people getting more enjoyment out of it. And, and COVID has also forced people to cook and eat together at home a lot more than they've done. And that's been really, really interesting as well. And in that, there's a seems to be, once again, a huge boost to sort of like this interest in produce again so you know people really the whole idea of cooking for the family and then maybe some of the extended family coming over you know something that's been like i've lots of stories told to me about people that i know where it's like they've gone to you know great lengths to create beautiful a beautiful meal for people to enjoy together in the home i was going to ask you obviously you just talked then about pivoting around your wine business but and i was talking to guy grossi in melbourne between lockdown one and two down there and he was saying that their takeaway which they never thought they'd ever do, sort of almost a takeaway business as they pivoted, um, you know, getting their tiramisu delivered to home for dessert. Have you done some of that and if some of your other restaurant uh, mates get into that side of things? And do you think that'll stick after COVID? 
I think that it's been really quite like so COVID's a very fast moving feast and it, it's changing a lot and it really your experience of COVID is dependent on several different things and it's quite different for different operators and in different segments of the industry and and especially in different locations like different physical locations so the people that have fared the best out of it are uh, operators that have had that already had exposure to takeaway prior to lockdown prior to COVID and usually in, in the suburban areas when you, if you're close to residential it's you know, uh, you probably some some businesses I reckon will have grown. Some dining restaurant businesses with a reasonable exposure to takeaway prior to the lockdown would have actually grown. Our local cafe, I live in Northbridge in Sydney, and um, our local cafe. So everyone's banned from going to the city and offices, or most yeah. people. So our our local cafe, they tell me they're a hundred percent up through COVID on the previous year. So, I mean, even when they weren't allowed to have people sitting out the front it's all most of it's it's open air so it's a pretty safe place but even when they were able weren't able to have people sitting down there they were still trading i think above because people everyone's would go there for a walk there's an activity everyone's working from home they're sitting in front of the computers half the day they'd and now they're going there for breakfast and they'll go back there for lunch again because they just need to get out of the house and have a physical break from sort of working from home not everybody not everybody likes working from home you know a lot, a lot of people <laughs> absolutely really crave social interaction and i notice you've also cut your menu back to to a much smaller menu how does that affect your dining situation and also on on a selfish note how does that affect us representing the Australian pork producers Right, so there's you know there's a lot in this. Just to finish what I was saying before, you've got other restaurants in suburban areas that weren't heavily exposed to takeaway prior to this, but then that pivoted to that, and and they're trading at about sixty percent of their previous revenue. This is a completely different business model for them. So the question as to whether it will stick or it won't stick—that's something that I think everybody's asking asking themselves about. So those guys are sort of like under JobKeeper, they're in a pretty good position. Like they're doing okay because the job seeker, the broad majority of your employees are eligible then, you know, that's not a bad situation under those circumstances. For people like ourselves, like Mitch says, you know, a large amount of sort of, I guess, if you once you go up to the more higher end, end spectrum of the restaurant and I can quote that I had a, a report from McKinsey's sent to me on what they predict as the scenario for the US restaurant market and they consider about 12 different scenarios but the one that they settle on that they think is most likely for the US market is that fine dining restaurants or the upper end of the restaurant sector will come back to a maximum of about 60% of revenue within two years. So anybody that's got anything to do with the running of business of any kind will understand that's catastrophic to have a 40% reduction in revenue. So Yes, Mitch, that kind of a analysis, I don't think the Australian markets would be radically different to the US. There may be some, some differences in there, but similar, it'll be a similar pattern here. I'm not sure whether it'll be that bad or it'll be worse but in Australia, but definitely through COVID, if you're a higher end and you weren't really, you know, you're not really the kind of business, I mean, your offer isn't one that really can be easily reflected in, an, in a takeaway offer, 
then it was difficult, and, and there's no doubt about that. Also, physically, if you're in the centre of a CBD, then you take away, you know, the, the existing delivery models and the companies like Deliveroo and, and Uber Eats and all that, you know, the, the commissions are really, really huge, and they kind of make a bit of sense if you already have a restaurant business that's operating, but if all you're doing is that, those commissions are really, really, there's big question marks as to whether it actually works. So the clever restaurateurs worked that out. If they were in close proximity to their market, then they were only doing pickup and very little delivery, or they were getting their own staff to do the deliveries within a, I don't know, five-kilometre radius or something like that. So under those circumstances, it was that was pretty good as a takeaway model. For us, at the top of the Strand Arcade in the middle of the CBD, you know, a pickup takeaway model for us is virtually impossible. So, and I think everybody else around us, uh, the whole of the CBD, Barangaroo, you know, most people didn't look at doing anything like that because it was just wasn't going to work. We were sort of on the verge of rolling out a delivery. We'd finally negotiated one platform to do take orders in another platform to do the delivery. And we took the commissions down from about 35% in down to around about 15% through once again, very much an innovative way of looking at things where you had to slot in times for buying the takeaway and the delivery. So the platforms and the operator, the provider of the food and beverage service really dictates the time within which certain things are cooked and delivered. That's a much more efficient model than being on, say, Uber Eats where you're on on speed dial 24-7 kind of thing. So we were learning that you could reduce costs for this order and delivery model so long as you organised yourself a certain way. I think the whole restaurant scene, has, there's been a lot of innovation, even also for the IT providers and new businesses. They're like, wow, this all kind of works. Some of this works. And COVID sort of made everyone do a big trial, if you like, like a big, you know, we all tried things for the first time. So we didn't actually roll it out because the restaurants were then back open again before we got to that point. So I know the second part Nina was about, you've got a substantially reduced menu, which you, you spoke me through because basically to operate now, you need to have a smaller menu and you're doing, you know, like a, a set menu offering. But what I'm curious about is what part does Port play in that? And I want you to be totally honest. Are we holding our place or is it negative to Port by having a reduced menu? The first thing is we all went back to reduced menus because we're all under this scenario of a four square metre rule. So that means capacities are, are cut in most cases by at least 50%. So you've, you've halved your capacity at any one time, which means you just can't have someone coming in and ordering an entree and having a glass of wine in a high-end restaurant scenario and taking up a space. You know, the whole thing about we were originally took prepayment for the whole of the food of the meals as well because you just couldn't have people booking. The first phase of it was 10 people. So... If two tables of two don't come, that's that's 40% of your revenue for a service that's gone because someone's decided they decided they didn't want to go out at the last minute. So there were two bits of that. One was you needed to guarantee a certain – for people to come and dine in your restaurant, it's almost like renting real estate really and really, really expensive real estate from the operator's perspective. We needed to get an average spend from a person to make it viable because the operations costs have also gone up as well. You know, you're – we're sanitising between services now and there's, there's individual menus for everybody. Everybody's got to have individual breads and you know, we do olive oil and breads at the start of our meals here. Everyone has to have their own set of olive oils, their own breads, nothing shared. 
there's a lot of additional costs. So everybody really went out and said, well, in order to make it sort of viable, we did 10 and we had to do a, in one of the restaurants we opened, in Pendolino we opened for 10 people and we did 10 people at 12 o'clock, another 10 people at 2.15. It was a two-hour dining time. It was a six-course degustation. At night time, it was 6 o'clock was the first sitting and the second one was uh, 6.15. So we needed really, if you wanted to come and do that with us, it needed to, for it to be viable for us and to work, we needed to say, hey, it's going to cost the X amount of money for the food you know, to make it viable. So to some degree, this is what everybody's done. With reduction in capacity, now, for in June, the demand was pretty strong after the lockdown. People were coming out in their droves and with reduced capacity, everyone's trying to make up for lost time. So even if you weren't at capacity earlier in the week, even on the reduced numbers, you know, the peak times like Friday and Saturday, Saturday nights, you just couldn't afford not to be getting a certain amount of money. So what that meant was probably the most common version of that now is that you would do a limited menu with less entrees and less mains and less desserts and you would, in order to come and dine in, in an establishment, you have to have at least two courses or three courses for a set amount of money and the diner can choose whatever they want off the menu. So it wasn't like there were less value was being given. It was just that people were really coming and consuming more by virtue of the new set of rules to come and dine in the restaurant. But what did happen was because there was also the restriction of actual throughput capacity, the numbers, we've, most businesses have reduced menus and made them smaller. Like with Pendolino, a lot of restaurants have gone to a tasting menu only. So the impact of that is that you don't get the variety on offer on a menu that you used to get. So in terms of pork, that's really, I think that becomes a... Yay, pork. About time you got back to pork, Nino. <laughs> well, Jesus. you kind of need to understand pork, that. The most important part of the story for me, Nino, you know that. I know that, I know that. We're always going to end in a crescendo of pork. So the thing is, you know, and I'm like, like, there's no one, you know, when we first started out on this sort of, you know, pork promotional collaboration many years ago, Mitch, you know, I remember you coming to me saying, I want to do A, B, C, D, and E, and I just looked at you and said, well, for Italians, pork central. For us, it's not a problem. For most Asian cultures... You know, if, I could just, if I could just jump in for a second, for our listeners who aren't aware, when we started the Pork Star program over 15, 16 years ago, um, I was pretty much new back to Australia after spending nine years out of the country. Nuno was introduced to me, and this was a guy who was connected with everybody, and he helped me get together the very first Pork Star event. So this is how Nuno became part of the pork family and why he should always have pork on his menu. Yeah. Keep going, Nuno, right. as you were. So for me, when you first said, hey, I want to do A, B, C, and D with pork, I'm going, that's really easy. They make pork central to what we do. And pork belly wasn't even really on the radar back then. So now, you know, now you wouldn't have dreamed of being able to buy it in a supermarket 20 years ago in Australia because of, yeah, the, because of the health concerns. So food service and the high end of food service has definitely reinvented, you know, the whole perception on, on different parts of pork. So when you said that to me, though, I was like, yeah, I'll always put pork on the mean. That's not – I mean, it's so easy for us. It's easy for the Spaniards, the French, the you – know, everyone, you know, most of the Asian countries don't have a problem with that. But I guess when you're limited, when you've got sort of six courses that you're doing and 
nowadays you've got enough headaches with all the dietaries that you have to deal with, you know. So we have one menu in Pendolino, f- on one tasting menu, but there's I think we counted something like about 14 derivatives of that menu now because of the dietary things that we now t- deal with a lot more than we used to in the past. So you're looking really to put some products on your menu that uh, are not going to be offensive to as as many as possible because you don't want to be changing too many things in the middle of a service. So pork gets a little bit tricky with that. You know, I'll, I'll always put it in there and we'll always have an option so that I can make it easy for someone else. Even when it's a set menu, we, we will give other options for our clients. But it's a little bit difficult. You know, you've got in Sydney, you've at the high end, you have a lot of people of Middle Eastern background that dine in the restaurants. You've got quite a lot of Jewish people that dine at the high end of uh, the restaurant sector regularly. So there's a little bit of a barrier there to be really profiling pork if it's not like a, an, an a la carte uh, choice, even under sort of sort of like a, you know, a scheme where you have to eat two or three courses where there are options. So I, I know I went to – I was at Key a week or two ago and, I, and the pork jowl was on – as the final sort of main course dish, which was magnificent. And uh, you can do it. I guess you just have to have the options. But there would be a barrier for some people. But, Nina, I want to challenge you on that, Nina, because if you're saying it's a key and they've got a set menu and pork's part of it, they must have a backup if it's not there. Yes. And I hear you about the cultural thing, but when we're looking at the cultural diversity of our nation, those that are opposed to pork for cultural reasons are very much a minority so it has to stem from, is pork under enough demand that if it's not there, it's a problem? And from what you're telling me, it's not a problem that's not there, which is concerning because that's been my baby to get pork on menus for the last 15 years. Well, I think the process over the last 15 years has seen pork become a – I mean, everyone that liked pork and ate pork in the past always loved pork. That was never a problem, but it wasn't on menus like like it – you know, it has come to be on menus, and we've we always have it on on all menus, and across multiple dishes normally. And I don't know the statistics, but I mean, all I'm saying is that through difficult times when you you know you're pivoting every two seconds, you just the first instance is to let's get the best possible thing we can get out to our client base under a limited scenario, and let's make it you know we just have to make it as easy as we can at the moment for everybody until we wrap our heads around all of this and. If I was to only have one main course dish that I could offer as part of a set menu, I think it, I'd really struggle to make it a pork dish. Yeah, well, you know, and that probably brings me into your wife is a vegetarian. You've always been very big on the vegetarian. Yes. Are you, you know, just on that, are you seeing much of a trend in the restaurants around vegetarian? We've talked a bit on the show so far about flexitarians. What, what are you seeing there? I mean, when I make that statement, I made that statement about the pork also in full view that I won't have anchovies on anything either and I won't have a whole heap of other things on a set menu like that. And and even restaurants, of you know, even restaurants like Keith that have been doing degustation menus ex- pretty much exclusively for a long period of time, I think they've changed the way they do things as well. The jowl down there is just sensational and it was amazing and they're set up for it, but... I don't think the chefs at, at sort of like the very, very innovative, the very, very top elk of sort of like three hat level, I don't think anymore they're just about making statements. They're also about looking after as many people as they possibly can. And I think, you know, that's been a global phenomenon. I think possibly the advent of American restaurants becoming really important globally now, particularly out of New York I think there's a feeling now that at the very top end of dining globally, 
you can be extraordinary and you don't have to be that innovative that you alienate a large amount of people either with dishes. And so that's where, that's what I think on that. And because there's a certain amount of people in Australia that just won't eat anchovy either. So if you've got a dish with anchovy. I love anchovy. I love it too. But all I'm saying is there's, there's real sensitivities. And when you're not giving any people kind of an option, it does take certain dishes out of the realm if you don't want to be dealing with complaints through the you know all day and all night. That's what I'm saying with that. But back to Billy's question, it was your question about plant-based, Billy. Well, flexitarian, plant-based, vegetarian, I mean, that's also, you know, I think they're growing in numbers. We can see the stats, but obviously it's still probably under what people who want pork or chicken or whatever else. You know, this is a hot topic at the moment. I'll be controversial and and say that I think it's a bit like when at the beginning of organic, you know, popularity of organic production where it occupied a lot more media lines than was actually that was reflected in the actual figures and the actual demand. I mean, you still go to the major supermarkets and there's not aisles and aisles and aisles of organic produce, unfortunately, I'll say, right? So, and I think veganism's really, really the buzzword, you know, you've got, you know, people like James Cameron, who's, you know, producing films on veganism because he's heavily invested in pea protein. So I'm a little bit sceptical about the whole, it's definitely a hot topic at the moment. And, you know, the Game Changer uh, movie, which sceptics would call a, a propaganda movie, really. And I only say that because their interests uh, go well beyond just making an interesting documentary about nutrition. So... I've looked a bit more deeply into this and so the you know sort of the whole idea is that if you become vegan you're going to live to 100 and you're going to die beautifully in your sleep and and you're not going to have, have any kind of heart disease and whatever and that that sounds kind of true but if you look at the blue zones where people around the world have got the highest amount of centenarians and they do have a predominantly vegetarian diet there's no doubt about that but most of them don't cut meat or fish out of their diet at all and so they've got really highly nutritious diets. There's other factors as well. There's no, they've got very limited preservatives and processed foods in their diets. So very little processed foods seems to have a massive impact on health. So this high, whole idea that you can become a, a more elite, you know, higher performance athlete by becoming vegan, I just don't think that it's as straightforward as that. But I wonder though, Nuno, I don't believe that we're getting a huge amount of people becoming vegetarians or vegans, but I think we're getting people becoming flexitarians and there's been enough push through their heads that they have to eat less meat. So I feel I need to challenge you on, they're not becoming vegetarians or vegans, but I believe they're becoming very flexitarian and not that they don't like meat, but they believe that they need to have less meat and they need to mix up their diet. So I agree with you, actually, Mitch. But what? Okay. So in restaurants, yes. Are we seeing more uh, vegans? Yes. Do we have vegan tasting menus? Yes. Have we been all forced to make amazing vegan food, even when we're not really interested in it? Yes. I'm kind of grew up predominantly vegan anyway, but we ate meat. So, and and I think the whole flexitarian thing is. Well, the first thing I'll say is when people become flexitarians, they're not acting like that when they come in my restaurants because. I don't think we've seen any kind of change in sales on, of meat products at all, nothing that's discernible. We do have more vegans, but instead of getting one 15 years ago, one every six months, we might get one a week now, right? So it's still not a very big part of anything. And I think this whole idea around flexitarianism, well, 
totally, but you'll see people's, and it's all driven by health, and it's all driven by, you know, longitudinal studies on health and nutrition, and, and it's all absolutely valid. And dare I say, we probably should be eating better quality meat, but less of it. And I agree with that. So, and I think the flexitarian thing, definitely, absolutely. I want to move away from the flexitarians because, quite frankly, I'm over them. <laughs> but what I do want to ask you is related to our port producers because we need people to be honest, and I seem to have you rolled up. What are we getting right at the moment and what are we getting wrong? In terms of? Of the pork we're producing. Yeah, and, how we, and I suppose how we're – you talked earlier about dealing directly with producers and, you know, how can we help the restaurateurs and the chefs more, I mean, from a producer point of view? And, and what are we doing – what aren't we doing so well? Where do I start? Some people still think that having a blush of pink in pork is going to kill them. So that's I'll put yep. I'll put that out there. So this whole yep. idea, there's and I know people that are highly highly intelligent people. They still don't, and some still don't even want to eat pork because they not because they wouldn't be interested in it for any ethical reasons or, or anything, but because they still think that if you undercook pork in any way, shape, or form, it's trichinella or trichinosis or whatever it is. It exists, and um, so we, you know, we did a wine dinner. We did a we did a wine dinner with Pigs Peak a week ago, and it was all very socially distanced. And we Pigs Peak are great wines from Hunter Valley. Yeah, so Just with a, you know, an old mate of both of ours, Mitch. So, so we were doing questions for the winemaker via SMS on the night, which was really fascinating and funny. And the main course was was the porchetta that you had on the weekend, Mitch. Which, yep, you know, Stunning. and so we cooked it as we would cook it for a pork star event, right? And we had people on the night that were told us that it was undercooked and it was a big problem and it was more than one table. It was really surprising to me. I thought we'd sort of gotten beyond that. So we, we actually had two nights. We couldn't do the, the wine dinner in one night because of the social distancing. We could only get 48 people in the restaurant. So we did two events over two nights. The second night, we cooked it more, significantly more, so... There wasn't too much of a blush of pink in the pork the next night. And the second night, the feedback on the pork was that it was sensational and amazing mm. and fantastic and was cooked perfectly. Now, if I'd cooked that for a pork star event to a group of chefs on the second night's porchetta, I reckon half the chefs would have thought it was overcooked. It's a little bit Groundhog Day now. now like, it sounds like you're saying we, like, we think we've got past it, and that's not the Australian pork producers, that's... Australian Pork Limited, us as the, from the marketing side, have to be mindful that, that we haven't overcome that barrier. So, and I, and I actually, yeah, I don't know how you do it. I know you've, you guys have just focused on blush of pink, right? So you're really driving home that, that idea that this is what it's perfect, not you don't have to eat it like that because it's, the disease isn't there anymore. But I just don't know about that. But that's feedback I would give to you saying, you know, and my clients are not exactly, you know, our clients our clients in our restaurants and people that come to our wine dinners, you know, they're not all country folk that have grown up on farms and seen disease in animals and feel like they need to, you know, cook everything well done either. They were a little bit of an older crowd this night, I will say that. But I would say just don't think, you know, there's still a certain amount of people out there, a certain amount of people that still do not want to see any kind of pink in the pork at all. And that was interesting for me. And what about as far as the pig goes? 
you know, what are we getting right in the carcass? What would you like to see more or less of it? What do you want from the producers, from our pig farmers? Look, I think I think so much positive, so many positive things have actually happened. And I think it's it's fantastic now that most restaurants treat pork the way I've always thought about it, but it's because growing up in an Italian household, you know, pork was a big thing. Our producers, they were quite excited with anticipation to hear us speak to you because they've heard your name for years, whether they've dined at your restaurant or they've heard it through different stuff that we've done with Porkstar. And they were pretty keen to hear us talk to you. And they and we got, actually had quite a few of them sent in questions in advance. But the one uh, most underlying question we got was, which we've kind of gone into, but what makes pork special for a chef and also a special eating experience for diners, whether it's eating on a budget or high end. So what would you sort of say makes it special for a chef and for a diner, just to wrap that up for our farmers who really want to hear from you? Oh, look, I think the, the truth is, uh, you know, if you had to say what attribute does pork have that no other meat has, I think you have to say it's crackling, as simple as that. You know, the, the, amount, the amount of pleasure you get from eating crackling is just amazing. And I think the combination of the white meat with that intense fat, it's just really, it's just a really, you know, and it probably has something to do with the melting temperature as well, you know, which is, of course, why it's used for sausages so much. And I think it's just, it really is that flavour. And, and it's got a lot to do with the fat. Mind you, I mean, really lean, lean pork cooked, you know, beautifully medium. Once again, it's, it's, I think it's just a really nice protein to eat. It's nice protein in and of itself. So you can say the same about chicken, really, you know. Um, and, of course, as a chef, I'm not supposed to say that because we're above chickens, right? But Chicken can be great. No, I think, fuck, well, but- it wouldn't be the most sold protein in Australia or in other places if it wasn't. So we have a hard time using it in restaurants because people don't generally want to buy it in restaurants. But, but the same as pork. Pork in and of itself, you buy lean protein, you lean pork, and you cook it appropriately, and it's a really beautiful tasting thing. But when you have it in the form of pork belly with the you know, the belly ends crackling you know it's just so long as you're sort of forgetting about calories for a moment it's uh it's got to be one of the nicest things you could ever put into your mouth and that goes for whether you're roasting shoulders or whatever it is so i think it's just that sense of bliss you get from eating pork you know and also you know, as chefs we love the gelatinous when you're braising the skin and and the fat as well so you know even down stuff like the hocks and even you know, we braise belly a lot as well. And, you know, I grew up eating pork belly braised into tomato sauces to eat with pasta. And some of the sauces that we grew up with was just the skin. So you made the sauce with just the skin, diced and slow cooked. And it's just the most extraordinary thing to eat. It's a magical beast. It is. It's, <laughs> you know, it's kind of, you know, the superstar element. I think ducks like this too because you get the, you know, that really crispy skin duck and the, and the high content of fat underneath. That's what pork, I think where pork, it's a beautiful protein in and of itself, even the lean stuff, but when the fat is amazing and, you know, when you get the crackling right, it's just one of the great meat dining experiences you can have in terms of base proteins, I think, and I think we, we're looking for that bliss point in dining because generally people aren't coming to our restaurants to, to be on a Jenny Craig diet. They come to our places to have an extraordinary dining experience and they want those bliss experiences and you know, I've got to say the jowl at Key had a thin, had a very thin line of fat over the top of the jowl. Often jowls served with too much fat for my liking, but this was such so nicely done and just the right amount of fat with the little cheek, the meat cheek underneath it. 
Yum, oh, yum, 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 Look, it's, Nino, it's a, amazing. It's a very good way to end, uh, I think, on a nice high. Nino, it's been amazing to talk to you. I mean, you're one of the most respected people in the industry, both as a chef and a restaurateur, and it's been great to talk today. Um, we've discussed a whole lot around how quickly the world's changing. I think you've given us a real insight into what it means for restaurateurs and chefs and, and how they've been adapting so quickly. I think it's, it's been pretty inspirational how the industry has pivoted and been so resilient to everything. So thank you so much. We're all looking forward to our next meal at either Pendolino's or La Rosa. So, and again, really big thank you for joining us on Next on the Menu. Fantastic. Well, it's always a great pleasure. And um, yeah, well, you know, hopefully we get to the other side of this thing and we're all in, uh, in better shape for it. We'll be good, Nino. Good luck, buddy. All right. Now, to finish it off, we'll just chat about what stopped us in our tracks this week. Now, for me, I mean, we talked a bit about it. I mean, Nino talked about restaurants pivoting. We've heard his story. I think Fratelli Fresh, for example, started selling restaurant-quality produce at one point just to try and keep themselves going. I mentioned Grossi's doing home delivery and their tiramisu. I mean, I think for me, that's been terrific, how our whole restaurant industry has pivoted so quickly when they've needed to. And Mitch, what stopped you in your tracks this week? Well, it's funny for me, you know, I've got this crazy interest in property and property investment, but what I've found really interesting looking at the market as a barometer of what the financial sentiment is around the country, I have to say, I find it encouraging to hear that many of the non-grandstanding economists are not all doom and gloom, and particularly when they look outside of the city. While the city might be affected by the, in the property market, outside of the city, it seems that Property forecasts are very strong, which can only be good news for our rural communities as people realise that you don't have to be based in a city. So I think country is becoming the new chic. So maybe our pig farmers will be sitting on a big lump of money in land alone. Indeed, they'd love to see that. Well, thank you so much. And that wraps up another great episode of Next to the Menu. Thank you so much for joining us. I'd like to also thank the boy from Bunbury, Nina Zakali, and my co-host Billy Baxter as well as our producers, Boyd Britton and Ashley Gray, and to the producers of Australian Pork who have helped to guide the conversation today. The podcast can be found on all good podcast networks such as Apple Podcast and Spotify. You can also find Next on the Menu across all Australian Pork social channels or at australianpork.com.au. We'd love it if you'd also like to leave a review. I'm Mitch Edwards. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time at Next on the Menu. 